He has coached South Africa to two World Series titles and a Commonwealth Games gold medal and an Olympic bronze medal. But for Blitzbok coach Neil Powell, the job is only partly about winning titles. The South Africa Sevens program has become the envy of the world game, where it keeps churning out world-class Sevens players every year and setting the tactical standard for the shorter version of the sport. The team had set its sights on Olympic gold in Tokyo this year, but that target has moved after the postponement of the global showpiece to July and August 2021, following the outbreak of the coronavirus. It will lead to a massive adjustment for the Blitzbox preparation timeframes, but will also give them a chance to evolve even further. Welcome to the Maverick Sports Podcast with me, Craig Ray, and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Neil Powell onto the show. Hi, Neil. Hi, Craig. Thank you for inviting me to talk to you on, on the show. Yeah, great. Thanks for taking the time. We're all in lockdown. How you been coping with the first uh, week or so of lockdown? Yeah, I think um, I think for everybody, the first week is probably going to be the easiest week. I think week two and three is probably going to be a bit challenging. And <laughs> if we go into a week four and five, which is probably a big reality that we'll go further than week three. But yeah, I think for us, especially in the seven setup, especially this time of the year, we away from home a lot. And um, I'm very much a family man, so I enjoy spending time with my family. And for me, this is a massive positive just to be able to spend time with my wife and my two boys. They are eight and three and a half years old, so uh, it's great spending time with them. Yeah, I suppose there is that positive aspect for a lot of families just to have a bit of time to take stock. I suppose from a rugby point of view, for the better part of more than a decade at this time of year, you've been busy and suddenly it's it's all gone. So that must be quite an adjustment. And and, and especially for the players uh, who are very active people, they got a lot of energy. What, what have you been saying to the players uh, in terms of lockdown and staying fit and keeping to some kind of routine? Yeah, I think for for us, um, because everything got moved to basically the, the later part of the year, so London and Paris only in September and then um, Hong Kong, Singapore only in October and then the Olympics only next year, we basically see this um, first three weeks of lockdown as, as our off-season. So um, we're going to go into a very long season where normally we'll only have 10 tournaments or would have had 10 tournaments next year and then nothing after that. We're basically going to have 14 tournaments and the Olympics. So it's going to be a very long season and um, we need to make sure that we don't just manage the players well in that long season, but in this time as well to make sure that we don't uh, mentally fatigue them before we get back onto the training field. So we tell the players that we see this first three weeks as, as an off season and as soon as we can get back on the field, we'll basically start uh, with a pre-season, which will mainly be conditioning and, and strength training and then skill development. It must be quite a physiological challenge because everything you've done from last October, November, when the squad started coming together and then tapered into the first two tournaments of the year in December, it was sort of geared towards a target, which was the Olympic Games in July of 2020. Physiologically, I know you're giving them the off-season now, but has it been quite an adjustment in terms of how you re-peak again, shall we say, in a a year later than, than anticipated? Yeah, it is a it is a bit of a difficult challenge. I think yeah, obviously everything we we did this season was was aimed at the Olympics. Um, the way we tested players, the way we got those fifteen players back uh, for those first two tournaments, and and I think the amazing thing about the opportunity that lies ahead of us is if we'd done anything wrong in those first six tournaments or first say 
six months building to what would have been the 2020 Olympics, we can now learn from those mistakes and and do it better um, the second time around. So mm. I think again we we see it as a positive. And yes, it is is difficult, almost more difficult to get your head around it. I think from a physical point of view, we can always get the guys fit again and strong again. The fitness and the strength that we had before this season started is nothing different to any other season. So mm. yes, we try to push the guys maybe a little bit harder, but it, it's not a 50% difference. It's probably like a 10 or, or 20% difference at most. So we'll keep on pushing when we when we get back onto the field. But I think the, the biggest thing is the mental challenge. I mean, you could see it in the guys already in the season that just fighting for those positions in the Olympic squad and already played six tournaments and now they have to play 14 tournaments to get into an Olympic <laughs> squad. So yeah. um, it's going to be, I think it's going to be more of a, of a mental challenge than a physical challenge, um, especially for the players. Mm. You would have had to do some negotiating around getting the release of maybe some players to be considered for the Olympics, someone like Cheslin Colby and, you know, Ciabello, Sinatla, Kocha Smith, all these guys, maybe a few others that are playing 15s and you probably had done your homework and you'd been to see the unions and everything was sort of on track and then suddenly it all moves by a year. So so those negotiations probably have to happen all over again because, you know, the timeframe is going to be different for everyone next year in 15s and at their clubs and so on, given that it's likely, especially in Europe, maybe with Cheston Colby's involved, this season is going to be cancelled completely in France. So who knows what impact that might have on next season in, in France. So are these mm. other issues you have to sort of confront in the next little while? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it is. Um, we are unfortunately going to have to go sit with all the unions again and and talk about those players that we think um, we want to use in the in the Olympics. And, and again, I think there's a, there's positives and negatives. I think uh, we couldn't get our hands on Cheslin for for two tournaments. Maybe there's opportunity now to to get him in for maybe Paris, London, mm. which is in September. Maybe the the season haven't kicked off yet in, in France or um, Hong Kong, Singapore in in October. So um, I think it. it it creates other opportunities as well but unfortunately we're going to have to sit with the unions again and, and do our planning in terms of those 15s players and when we want them to be released to us but again we can only we can only do that um, part of, of the negotiations when we know what the French league is going to look like and what the Curry Cup is going to look like in South Africa and when the Super Rugby is going to start so there's mm. a lot of variables still and uncertainty still in terms of, of season and, and, and tournaments and and competitions that we probably gonna have to sit and, and wait for another, I say probably at least two months to see um, how this coronavirus um, spread is going and 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 how quickly we can get information on on um, on the specific tournaments and and dates. It sounds like you're quite adaptable, although given the nature of what you do, there's a lot of structure, you know, in terms of your day and everything's set months in advance. You know and. You know, on the July the 13th, your team will be doing this and that and what hour they're going to do it. That's the kind of level of detail you've gone to. Uh, these variables that have been thrown at you because of coronavirus, is that, um, are you guys adaptable enough, do you think, to cope with them? Yeah, I think I think we are adaptable, and, and yes, you're right. We are very structured, and I, I think at times maybe too structured, <laughs> and we need to and we need to get out of our comfort zone sometimes. Um, but I think one of the things that we've learned from the Seventh Circuit is just to control the controllables. I think stuff that we can't control, we it's needless to almost use 
physical or mental energy on 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 thinking about it and worrying about things that we can't control. And I think it, it happened so many times to us where we were waiting for a bus to get to the game and, and the bus is 10 minutes late. And, and because we're so structured, you know, 22, you do your top-up strapping and then um, at 10 o'clock you do your video session and then mm. 20 past 10, it's your activation. And then half past 10, it's your it's your warm-up. So it's, it's, it's very structured. And when the bus is 10 minutes late, it, it affects the, the rest of the, the sequence going into a game and, and we had to learn to adapt and accept that and control the controllables and, and that's our mindset and and sometimes we'll shift we'll make the warm-up five minutes short and the guys need to get themselves ready mentally and physically in a, in a 15 minute warm-up rather than a 20 minute warm-up and I think that's one of the things that the seventh circuit taught us was everything doesn't always happen like you want it to happen even on the field as well I think at times we can be a little bit more adaptable I think if things don't happen exactly the way we want it to happen, we struggle to adapt a little bit. But it's something that we, as a, as a management, as a team, tried to work on over the last two years. And I think we, we're definitely getting better better at it. So, yeah, I, I think control the controllables. And, and like I said, if the only thing that I like is before I do my planning is I, I need to get the detail. I need to know the facts. So I can't do planning and then planning again after we've got the dates and then planning again when it changes again. So mm-hmm. I'll rather sit out a, bit, a little bit and wait till we get all the detail and all the facts and all the dates of all the tournaments and then um, sit down and do a detailed plan about how we're going to get ourselves to the Olympics in the best possible mental and physical state. You guys have achieved so much over the decade, but you were a sevens player yourself. Uh, you, you played for the Blitzbox, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, Neil. You played in the uh, the title winning team in 2009. Yes, I, I was. I was part of that squad and of, of that team. Yeah. I didn't play the first part of the the season. Basically, the first I think four tournaments. I I broke my arm in a Curry Cup game in the Curry Cup just before that season and it kept me out of the first four tournaments wow. for that season but did play towards the end but more off the bench type of play you know what what it's like mm. so when you're a senior player and you get those type of injuries then there's those youngsters take the opportunity when they get that and I think yeah. for me in that particular situation it was Carl Brown he actually got his opportunity to start oh, wow. and he really played well and he um and he became the the number one hooker in the team and and I <laughs> I came with the bench for him so and that that's life and that's that's what happens yeah. good on him for taking his opportunity when it was presented to him so um yes i was part of that squad and um Zwandili stick was the captain that year i was the the captain the year before um so he was the captain in that year and um yeah it was great to be part of that that team that uh the first South African sevens team that won the World Series. Mm, it was. And just going back a little bit, your your rugby career, you played Curry Cup, you were at the Free State, you were scrum half. When did you sort of think of sevens as, as a viable option as a rugby player? Because I suppose in the early years of the World Series, which started in 99, the sevens was almost an afterthought. We sort of just put a team together and they went off and 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 played there wasn't a real structure to the sevens for a while i mean we'll get to that in a moment but so when did you as a player go well actually the sevens thing i, I quite like this this could become a viable career option yeah um she's uh, to be honest I, i've played sevens i think the first time in my life when i was 11 years old there was a there was a sevens competition in at one of the schools in Bloemfontein called Onse Rest. And funny funny enough, I was player of the tournament. So <laughs> that's probably where it, all, where it all started way back when I was 11 years old. And then I've got my first opportunity. I got invited to a trials, a seventh trials um, by Ian McIntosh. Yeah. 
then didn't make the team that went to the last two tournaments. So it was London and Cardiff at that stage. Wasn't selected to go to those last two tournaments of the season. Um, under, I think it was Norman Mbiko was actually the head coach. And then Ian McIntosh was assigned from SR Rugby to go and assist Norman Mbiko. And then somebody got injured in the first tournament in London. Hmm. And then I got uh, called up for that tournament in Cardiff. So my very first sevens tournament was in, was in Cardiff under Ian, Ian McIntosh. And, and I think you mentioned it in the question as well. Um, sevens wasn't that big uh, way back then. Um, and I think... Uh, one of the front runners for Springbok Sevens in South Africa was Ian McIntosh. And if you speak to um, Ian McIntosh, he will always tell you the story that he, he went to South Africa or to SA Rugby and said, listen, if you want these guys to wear that Springbok jersey, then you must treat them like Springbok players. You mm. can't just select a mediocre team and then send the guys to a tournament and we don't do well. You need to put resources into the system and make sure that they... They are the best that they can be to represent South Africa. Otherwise, you must call them something different and give them a different jersey. So yeah. he was a big, big, big front runner and advocate for for Springbok Sevens in South Africa, and he probably started the whole professional era way back then. So um, for me, then I only played those two tournaments or that one tournament in Cardiff, and then never played again. But then. Chester took over from from Norman and Biku. Chester Williams took over from Norman and Biku and, and Ian McIntosh the following year. Mm. I think it was uh, end of '99 of end of 2000. And then they played a tournament in Dubai. Got three injuries there. And then Chester actually phoned McIntosh and asked him. So he's he's in trouble. He needs three players. There wasn't a pool of players or a squad like we have now. Yeah. So when an injury happened like that, you will pull players from 15s yeah, and, and get them to the next tournaments. <laughs> so, and interesting a lot, enough, they invited three players to that week uh, leading up to the Durban tournament. So the tournament was still in Durban that year. It was myself, Brent Russell, and then one other guy from the Bulls. But he then only were there for that one week and never came back to the sevens again. So that was also where Brent Russell's career started as a, as a sevens player was um, wow. in that tournament in Durban. You would have loved to have uh, a Brent Russell full-time sevens player as a coach, surely. I mean, geez, that guy, if ever there was a player built for sevens, <laughs> he would have been the guy, wouldn't he? Yeah, no, he's an amazing little player, and I think he's um, he's one of those players that's got the full package. I mean, yeah, he was pretty good at fifteens, wasn't he? He was, uh, he was, and I, you would think a small guy like that would be able to hold his own in, in the contact situations and and in the physical areas. But he was pretty good in in those areas as well. And and then I mean, his attacking ability and his um, his explosiveness was just um, amazing. Something that uh, is definitely one of the one of the attributes in sevens that will make you a star. And he, he had all of that. Yeah, the years go on. I mean, the sevens program, as we've discussed earlier, wins the two thousand eight nine World Series. And let's be honest, it was Fiji and, and New Zealand really dominated. In fact, New Zealand, uh, I think, won the first six mm. versions of the uh, World Seven Series, and then. Fiji won one and the New Zealand won another two and finally South Africa won one. So at that point, it, it was more of an anomaly. Did that fuel your sort of desire, your future desire to go, we've got to be able to compete with these guys consistently? Was that where the seeds of sort of coaching and developing the Sevens program started? Um, yeah, I think I think definitely. I think um, for me, Sevens is such a beautiful game. I think at that stage, say 2007, 8, 9, 10, I think 15s were so structured. Um, and for me as a scrum off, 
Um, I felt like being in different 15 setups, um, in 15s, they tell you when to kick, when to run, when to pass. Hmm. Where with sevens, it's it's a little bit different. Yes, there's structure, but there's also a lot of freedom. I mean, you could play your own individual attributes and, and almost express yourself out there. Uh, where with 15, sometimes they put you in a box and they, they tell you when, when to do what. And I, and I think um, what inspired me as a coach to be successful was was basically, I think, New Zealand. I think New Zealand dominated the World Series for such a long time, um, like you rightfully mentioned. But yeah. um, And I think at one stage, I think 2006-2007 or 2007-2008 season, New Zealand won 47 games in a row without a loss. And we beat them in Adelaide for the first time um, where they lost in 47 games. And I I never mentioned it to anybody or to the players, but I was always aspiring to to get to that record of 47 (laughs) um, winning games in a row. But I think the the World Series became so competitive now these days that Mm. it is virtually impossible to, well, I think win... 20 games in a row without a loss. It's, yeah. it's, it's just too unpredictable. It's just too finely balanced. It's uh, one mistake or one call is not going your way and um, you find yourself on, on the wrong side of the result. So uh, obviously the massive, almost like pride in, in Springbok rugby and Springbok sevens. I think from a, as a small boy, I always used to watch those um, Springbok Saga rugby tapes where yeah. I've at one stage, I think I've watched it so many times that I could <laughs> commentate word for word with a commentator <laughs> on the tape. So, uh, yeah. massive passion for for South African rugby and for Springbok for Springboks, fifteens and sevens. And growing up, always wanted to be a Springbok rugby player. So, um, I think that's that's probably where it, where it came from. We're jumping around in the timeline a bit, but um, once your um, playing career ended, as I understand it, you and Marius Skuman took a proposal to SA Rugby about developing a Sevens Academy. Tell us the story behind that and, and give us sort of time frame. It was around 2010, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, sheesh, when was it? I was going to think back quickly. There was three guys. Um, Quinny de Villiers was the other guy. He was basically a Springbok wrestler that um, when Paul was still the coach, Paul contacted him and asked him, listen, can you come work with the guys in terms of the contact skills? So that's where we started. The wrestling stuff for our contact skills was with Quinny de Villiers. Yeah. Um, that was a Springbok wrestler. And um, he, at one stage, it was um, him and myself and Marius Kuman that were sitting together and, and uh, talking about the uh, possibility of doing a seven clinics first. So we, the first idea was seven clinics and, and then uh, maybe a commercial sevens academy. And, and then we thought by ourselves, well, there's only one sevens team in South Africa. There's not like Alliance and a Western Province sevens and a, and a free state. So yeah. I think a commercial thing w- won't really work. But what will work nicely is if we can start a, academy, a South African rugby academy. So we drew up a proposal, probably took us like a year. We probably started 2010, yeah. but only got it done by 2011. And then took it first to um, Umjan Prinsler, that was still the CEO at that stage. And it was in that transition phase where mm. Yuri then took over from him. And then luckily Umjan Prinsler talked to Yuri and said to him, listen, these guys have got a plan and, and he thinks that um, SRQ needs to back this plan. So took then the plan to Yuri and, and they bought into it. So mm. we opened the door of that Sevens Academy in January 2012. And our intake that year was Jason Colby, Justin Gedult, Werner Kok. Kwaga Smit 
And then there was three other guys that then didn't make it VF Stradom. And then two older players, they won 19. They were 2021. 20, mm. um, but yeah, happy that we had that first intake. And, and obviously the fact that we had so much success with that first intake definitely helped us to almost punt this, this SA Academy or Rugby Sevens Academy more with South African rugby and say, listen, guys, this is successful. The guys are getting into the 15s uh, or into the Senior Sevens team. Um, so please keep the doors open of the, this academy. So um, yeah, that's that's how we started. But I never thought that I will go into coaching. I, I always said I'm going to get married after I played rugby because I don't want to have this my wife and my kids to have yeah. the same life as <laughs> what I'm having as a rugby player. Now I'm a coach. Growing up, it was never something that was in my head. I want to become a coach. But that, that last two years of my playing career, I, I really enjoyed when we did drills in the drill to individually like take some of those junior players aside and go, um, this was maybe not a good option. You should have done this in this situation or just to almost rectify them and just to channel them a little bit into the right direction. And a guy like William Smallsmith and Paul Jordan that was part of that squad and that just came out of school. And I almost could feel they was starting to, to almost develop a passion mm. for this coaching and working with these young men um, inside of me and, and it almost came into my mind or I was thinking about she's, uh, maybe coaching is, is something that I would like to do and that, that is a passion of mine and I, I think I will definitely enjoy it. So it was just an evolution really into coaching rather than you know, what you woke up one day and said I'm a coach. You sort of were doing it anyway. Yeah, no, it was definitely it was definitely not there always, and it almost mm. developed as I as I almost finished my playing career and, and worked with the younger guys in the system still as a player. Yeah, and I mean, it's now grown, Neil. From those humble beginnings, the the academy is now really, as I said in my intro, the envy of the world game. I mean, you guys do you contract. I think it's twenty eight or twenty nine players full time now. Mm. Uh, you you basically run. You could run four squads, but you run two very successful squads with the academy team and the and the sevens. The women's programs coming online uh, as well. Yeah. You know, could could you have envisaged how successful it, it would have been? And I'm not just talking about results. I'm talking about the way you develop players. Yeah, not really. I I, I think um, you sometimes stand in O and think, how did this happen so quickly?" And I, and again, I think it's not just one person; it's the whole system. I mean, from Morris with the academy, they follow exactly the same values and culture in the academy system so that when the guys come through to the to the senior side they already um, fill up the water bottles and they will already carry the stuff and they will already get up when when you walk into a room to greet you and just the small things I think that makes a massive difference and our mission statement is um, touching people's lives or inspiring hope and, it, and it's not just on the field but it's off the field as well and we always tell the guys they can never underestimate just a good morning with a smile on your face to somebody that maybe doesn't have a, a great day. So we, we have an amazing bunch of people in the system, management and players, and it's just a, it's just an incredible privilege and honor to to be part of the system. And what are the other major aspects of the, of the Sevens program? And we've seen the change at Springboks and, and, and a lot of provincial unions now, but you guys have been the flagship of integrated teams of transformation and that's not a conscious effort it's just that you've looked at every player i guess as players and and it's just taken a natural evolution your your team is is massively transformed is that something you even consciously think about or it's just part of what you do 
Yeah, I think it's part of our culture. One of the, the best examples I can mention is as a 15s player, you always used to be so quiet before the games and everybody's in their own zone. And mm. the first time I came to the sevens, just before the warm-up, the guys have this big speaker in a, in a team room or in a, in a change room. And then they start playing this music and... Mm. Half of the team are getting up and, and dancing, and, and sometimes they will have a, a dance off, and I'm like, "What is this? <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing? This is not part of rugby. You must be serious, yeah. and you're going to go into war now. You can't you can't put music on and start dancing." And uh, and I yeah. think um, <laughs> it was something that was strange to me, but I, again, it was from a culture that was brought into the sevens team that I think made not think that I know mm. made the guys better and the team better and I think there's a lot of those small things that we can take from different cultures and backgrounds that contributes in, in making this system what it is today and, and we always say that the system is doing well when there's smiles on the faces so when when I walk into the change room and the guys are quiet and you can see the tenseness in, the, in their faces and there's no music nobody's dancing then I know we're in trouble but if the music is on <laughs> and um, the guys are dancing then I know the opposition is in trouble and it's amazing I, we've we've seen it so many times we, we played in a final in New Zealand against Fiji where the guys basically all 12 guys or 13 guys were standing in a circle and they had a dance off so one at a time somebody came in showed his moves and go went out again and the next side will go in and we, we beat Fiji in that final <laughs> it's just amazing how the different cultures and what they can bring to the team helps to to make this system successful and and that's how we embrace that diversity and and the different cultures and it's a I, I don't think the guys are even seeing color anymore they just they're friends and and i sometimes go because they will go after a full day of training they will go to the closest coffee shop and they will have coffee together and then it's carl that's english speaking philip that's african speaking mm. Cecil that's a uh, color from pe Bello that's a sutu from from the free state and mm. and then zandilian gobo that's zulu from johannesburg so mm. it's just amazing how these guys different backgrounds like this mm. they don't just get along but they actually love each other's company and and yeah. for me it's almost a, a practical example of what south africa could be yeah absolutely and it's wonderful and i mean it comes through in the in the play it comes through on the field talking about the play you uh became head coach and you had four seasons of of runners up in the world series uh in that time there was a commonwealth games gold medal as well and the olympic games of 2016 where you earned a bronze medal which of course is a fantastic achievement winning a medal but the next season you you really put that all behind you in a in a big way. You won four of the first five tournaments of the year. You made seven finals in a row up until Hong Kong. You know, you pretty much put the season to bed by Hong Kong. And then you defended the title the following year, but that was mm. that was dramatic. You were always chasing Fiji down in that season and Fiji were just ahead and, and you just kept it going. You you got to the last two tournaments of the year needing to do really well you came second in london and then you uh you won in paris but you needed fiji to as i recall miss out on the quarterfinals in paris to, to win it and and that happened and then of course you still had to go and win it because by that stage you were still three games away from winning it so that, that must have been quite an amazing one in a different way yeah it's it's one of those tournaments where you almost feel like everything that happened in that tournament was out of your hands and it was it, it was such a weird string of events in in that particular tournament we obviously going into Paris we knew that Fiji had to lose in the quarterfinal and then we need to win the tournament to to win the World Series and we well I basically thought what's the chances because Fiji was also so good that season that they were lost in a quarter that they were losing a quarterfinal and then started that 
tournament, we I think we we didn't have a ten. Cecil got injured in London. Um, we flew um, Devil Demon over, but we actually started with Ruan Nell in in that tournament, and I think we actually lost our first game against Scotland. I think we lost the first game. We beat the team that we played second, and then had to play Canada in the third game to still beat them and, and make it to the quarterfinal. And then the first two games, Rwan really struggled in uh, in the flyoff position. And we decided in that Canada game to start Yapi or Devil Iman. And he actually had a marvelous game. And we managed to put Canada away uh, quite well, something like 31-10 or 31-12 or something like that to, to make it to the quarterfinal. Wow. And then we got Spain in the quarterfinal and we were the very last quarterfinal of, of of all the quarterfinals. So going into that game, Fiji just played before us in their quarterfinal or they played two games before us in the quarterfinal. So just before we went out to warm up, I saw that Fiji lost in a quarterfinal mm. and I tried to keep it quiet. I can still remember Zane Davids coming from the toilet just before going to the warm up and he saw on the TV that Fiji lost. And I pulled him aside before he got to the team and said to him, listen, if you tell the guys that Fiji <laughs> lost in the quarterfinal, I will kill you. <laughs> and I, I remember he looked at me with his big, big eyes and he, and he walked past me and he went into the change room and we went out for a warm-up. But as we, as we went out for the warm-up, the Fijians came back and you could see on their faces that they've lost and obviously then the players knew. So warm-up went out on the field against Spain and I just had this funny feeling. I this is not going to be that easy. Mm. Just in Spain with nothing to lose, threw everything at us uh, and it actually took us um, to go into extra time to to beat Spain in the quarterfinal. And then I had to play New Zealand in the semis, which was um, which is obviously not an easy game, but the guys really did well to beat New Zealand. And then to, I had to play England in the final. And, and again, an amazing thing that happened in that game was, so they kicked off first half. We played, I think it was still tight at halftime. Or we were one try ahead, I think, at halftime. So it was 14-7 or 12-7 or something like that. And then at halftime, it started to rain. Yeah. And that made the ball very slippery. So we kicked on them. And we managed to pin them in their in their twenty two. They made a handling mistake, and we capitalized and we scored off that. The second time when we kicked off, they tried to kick it back to us, gave us ball position, and we scored again. So we had that amazing blessing of that rain starting at half time to to almost help us to put that game in the second half. So yeah, amazing tournament and one of those tournaments, like I said, we just feels like nothing that happened you could have prevented or helped. It was just it, it just felt like. It was out of your hands, and and there was a higher power that um, that obviously helped you to to pull that one through. And uh, you know that's it's gone on like that. You've uh, you, you achieved the target of qualifying for the Olympics the following year. You didn't defend the title for a third time in a row, but uh, objectives were different. Players come and go. It was also uh, 15s World Cup. So and, and and you had a lot of players then deciding to go to 15s to. Dylan Sage, Quaker Smith, Ciabella Sonatla, uh, Roscoe Speckman, all these players. Yeah, have, have sort of transitioned to 15s. Um, so last year was a year of growth and and squad depth, which which is obviously something that's going to stand you in good stead in the in the coming years. Yeah, it was a. I think it was it was a challenging year. Like I said, I think um, that first uh, what's it four five years of my coaching career were really blessed with a lot of success, and then that fifth season or sixth season came, and and all of a sudden all of all of the players that you've um, spend so much time on developing and, and, and getting them ready for the for the sevens game just um, left and play 15s and, and I think as a coach you probably w- were disappointed and, but you also knew that 
um, that's what the seven system is 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 about. It's a it's a it's a tool to develop players, not just for sevens but for for fifteens as well in in South African fifteens players like Springbok fifteens players. So we always knew that at some stage we are probably going to get players that will leave and go to the fifteens. And I think in that year there was a, a lot of players that left: Tim Agaba, Dylan Sage, Ruan Nell, uh, Roscoe Speckman. I think. If you look at the positions and the players, you could basically field a full squad or a full team mm. with the players that left in in that season. See Bellos and Natla. Um, so it was it was really tough. And then we we had a big injury to to Cecil that year as well, and I think Kyle as well. So or Philip, mm. yeah, one of the two. But anyways, so uh, yeah, difficult season. And and at stages we had to make decisions to leave some of the senior players at home to make sure that we develop the, a, a junior player like a JC Pretorius or a Kirtley Ahrens or a Stedman Hans and it was it was tough times because you knew that you're probably going to sacrifice results to almost get that player's experience and, and game time but it's something that we needed to do to make sure that the following season we in, in, in a good space in, in terms of where we want to go in, especially in, in having in mind the Olympics the next season so it, it was a tough season I think at, at times you, you almost were losing out and then mm. the next tournament we played well again and this team started to challenge a team but it was a difficult year I think probably one of my most challenging coaching seasons or seasons as a as a coach and um, it was tough it, and I think personally it, it takes a lot out of you as well and and it doesn't just affect you it affects your family as well my lo- my wife lives lives this emotion and everything with me um, when we're in the sevens fields so the first <laughs> first few years we were a little bit spoiled and now we we almost got a bit of a rela- reality check of, yeah. of what it's really like on the seven circuit in the last um, year or two just in summation Neil wrapping up how long do you see yourself doing this job? Because it must take its toll, you know, as you've just described there. It's it's stressful, but it's also what you love, so it's a it's a trade off. Um, how long do you see yourself in the role? Uh, certainly in South Africa, anyway. Do you do you have any plans to move on? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question, but a tough question. And I think um, yeah, it's not just the um, I think the emotional toll and the mental toll that it takes on you, but also the time away from home. I mean, mm. my boys are growing up as well. Um, they're eight and three and a half years old, and you miss a lot of the activities and the sporting sporting games and tournaments and everything. So it's it's a it's a lot of decisions that I have to make. And being mm. a family man, it's it's probably going to be because of the family that I make decisions. But um, I also told my wife that I I won't be able to do this job for longer than ten years because I think I'll I'll die before I'm fifty. So it <laughs> doesn't. Look like I have emotions when I sit next to the field, but there's definitely a storm brewing inside of me. So yeah. it looks calm on the outside, but it's uh, it's definitely not a case on the inside. So um, this was my seventh season. So we'll have to see. We'll we'll sit and talk with SRP and see what they think, and if there's maybe possibility of uh, another position inside of SRP, or then um, maybe other other ventures I'm, I'm not i'm not sure uh what yet with its 15 so maybe another seventh country or maybe totally different something different but um yeah let's let's see how it goes mm. i think it will probably be another two years until 2022 after the world cup in south africa yeah but then probably gonna have to make some some decisions well it's going to be an interesting time as well there you know the world's landscape will probably change after coronavirus and, and certainly the sporting landscape is under a lot of financial stress and stress at the moment yeah. we might see a different a different world a different series a different we don't know what it's going to bring Neil but I suppose 
like you said earlier, you guys are ready for any challenge, and I and I guess there will be some challenges ahead because of what's what the globe is going through at the moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, it is challenging times, and I think, um, like I said, it's, I think it's there's still there's probably still a lot more to come in terms of lockdowns and, and the time that we're going to have to stay in lockdown and, and what's going to happen. And um, yeah, I think from our side, we would like to encourage South Africans and everybody across the globe to to um, stay home and make sure that we unite behind this thing and and that we look after each other. Let, let us um, let us make sure that our fellow South Africans and, and fellow people in, in the world are, are safe and, and that we do our part to, to try and not just um, flatten the curve but to stop the spread of this virus. So um, it's interesting times and I would really like to encourage people to stay safe and, and make sure that everybody abide to the laws that were put out there by President Mr. Ramaphosa. Neil Powell, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on the Maverick Sports Podcast today. And uh, go well when you do get back on the field. We'll talk to you in the future. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks a lot, Greg. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by our Maverick Insiders. Please consider becoming part of our Maverick Insider community where, for a nominal fee every month, you are supporting quality, independent journalism. You also get some cool benefits such as Uber vouchers when the coronavirus pandemic subsides and engagement with our journalists thrown in. Please go to dailymaverick.co.za forward slash insider to sign up and become part of the Maverick Insider community. Also, remember to sign up to our Maverick Sports newsletter, which hits your inbox on a Monday and never miss another podcast by signing up via your favorite platform. I'm Craig Ray. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Yeah.